0: From Social Service Daishi, I'm Zheng Yang. Seeking Shelter, Homeless During the COVID-19 Pandemic in Singapore is the country's second nationwide street count of its unhoused and homeless conducted in 2021. With its authors Dr Ng and Simran, we begin by reviewing the first street count and report in 2019. Thereafter, we dive deeper into their most recent report to understand the state of homelessness during COVID-19, explore the role of social policy, and discuss volunteer engagement and ethical priorities. Dr Ng, Senior Research Fellow and Head of the Social Inclusion Project and Case Study Unit at the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, National University of Singapore. He previously shared about his other research projects and the minimum income standard study on this podcast. Simran is a research assistant in the social inclusion project at LKY SPP. So, Kokho, Simran, welcome to the podcast. I thought we should start by reminding folks about Singapore's first nationwide street count, which you he also helmed, right? Which found that there were between 921 and 1050 street homeless people in Singapore. That was in 2019. Now it's about three years later, you've led, both of you have led a second nationwide homelessness street count across a period that was largely marked by the COVID-19 pandemic. So I thought we should frame our conversation today in three parts, right? So first to understand the state of homelessness during the pandemic and comparing the figures across the two reports and studies. Then second, I thought we should explore a little bit about social policy and social services, what they can and cannot do. I think what's interesting here is that there was, and it was acknowledged in the report, there have been initiatives and policies in response to that first report, right? So that's interesting that I think can be explored. And the last one, which is my personal interest, would be diving a bit deeper into volunteer engagement, you, those who are involved in the street count and ethical priorities as they relate to the volunteers and of course to the community members also. So let's start by comparing the research designs of the two studies, right? So both involved a nationwide street count, but instead of doing a survey in 2021, the both of you and the team conducted in-depth interviews instead. So um, you also collected shelter data. So how did you make the decisions with the focus with in-depth interviews and with the shelter data
1: right so with with the the methodological decisions behind the study i think we really benefited from from continuity from having done this now for since uh, 2017 actually we we were able to learn from our early experience as well as findings so three major decisions to make this time round. The first was to do in terms of the street count to do just a cumulative count. So in the report, and whenever I talk about the study, I differentiate between uh, doing a cumulative count, which is geographically comprehensive. We go everywhere over a period of time, uh, but there's always a risk of inaccuracy because there's a mobility homeless people can move from across zones over the period of the count. So that's a cumulative count and versus a single night count where you deploy all your field workers on on one night. Uh, But because it's so resource intensive, you can only go to selected locations. So that was always one of the major decisions because the resource implications were so huge. Based on the 2019 results, we found a very high, a very tight correlation between the geographical distribution of homeless people in both types of count. So that convinced us that this time around, we can do the less resource intent way, which is the cumulative count, which is also more feasible during the, a pandemic right? because we don't have to gather hundreds of few workers at the same place and then deploy them at once. So that's the first decision to do the cumulative count only. Uh, the second decision you mentioned was to include for the first time uh, shelter occupancy data. Uh, this, I think, was critical given what we 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 knew at the time about developments during the pandemic, which was that huge numbers of people had sought shelter, right? And I mean in, in temporary overnight shelters. Well, firstly, because sleeping in public places became unlawful at one time because of uh, public health restrictions and also because of uh, an expansion of shelter capacity. So given those circumstances, I think if we relied on street count data alone, uh, we would have presented only a partial and possibly misleading picture of the state of homelessness. So that was the second key decision to include shelter occupancy data, which is also standard practice actually in places like Hong Kong, South Korea, and the United States. The third decision, was to switch from a survey that was part of the 2019 study to in-depth interviews, which was done separately from the street count this time. I mean, in-depth interviews being a qualitative method. Anywhere you talk to people one-to-one or anywhere from an hour to an hour and a half, they're really much more effective for understanding kind of people's personal circumstances, housing histories, pathways into homelessness. And their experiences of housing insecurity during such an extraordinary event, right, like the like the pandemic. So, so that was the the third key decision.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And based on what you shared right
0: these are the headline figures right so in the report overall homelessness has not changed significantly we can just look at the street homeless number that's dropped by 41% but based on what you just shared that's not quite represented because those in temporary shelters have increased from 65 to 420 right so for folks who are reading and understanding the report at least when I read it COVID-19 feels like the intuitive explanation right because as you mentioned it was for a period illegal to be outdoors what else should we know about the findings besides those top level figures in relation to overall homelessness, street homeless, and those in temporary shelters?
1: We're often asked when we present results from this count and the previous one, whether we are surprised by the findings. But this time around, what I was surprised by was that the overall number has not changed significantly because of the sheer scale of state intervention, a lot of it motivated by the pandemic, so that the total number still was was hovering at around a thousand. was, to me, quite surprising. But I thought it was important to highlight that the form of homelessness has changed. And and this, for us, was an opportunity to help uh, people be aware that homelessness takes different forms, right? It happens on a continuum of insecurity but different forms of homelessness are all causes for concern and i would say this was that the form of homelessness has changed a lot of the rough sleeping had moved indoors right in a way into shelters i do think it's largely a product of the pandemic uh, both an increase in demand so people seeking shelter the safety of shelter as well as an increase in capacity the supply and availability of shelter places so that was, I think, the primary driver of the trend. But I think it's it's equally important to, to talk about what the available data do not tell us, right? So in research, we want to know what we have discovered, but we want to be very conscious of what we still do not know. And so the data we present in the report, they are snapshots. So they are population or what we call stock figures, right? Of the situation on the street and in the shelters. But snapshots do not tell us about entry into and exit from homelessness. So they don't tell us about flow. To fully understand what happened during the pandemic and from here onwards, we really do need to know the number of people entering and leaving shelters and the streets right? each month. And critically, I would say uh, exit is really important to know. We need to know exit destinations and outcomes. What happens when when people leave shelters where do they go do they move into secure housing public housing for example or do they end up in unstable living arrangements with family and friends do they end up in unaffordable open market rentals that will that will eventually break down or do they end up back on the streets so those for me are the key questions we we still need to answer
0: I know this is an unfair follow-up because you've just concluded this study, right? So am I right to assume that that's the plan for the next iteration, which is taking a, um, beyond the snapshot, taking a sense of mobility, right? Mobility in a sense of entry, exit, and more importantly, as you share, where folks go to thereafter. Is that in the pipeline?
1: I hope that that's the direction that research will take to... We mentioned in the report, we hope that researchers can pay attention to diverse forms of homelessness, including people who are in, for example, uh, living with friends and family, but only for Mm -hmm. a short time for each stint, uh, or living, sleeping at the workplace, for example. I think as we move past the the headline figure of rough sleeping, that's where I hope research will will move into, to see different forms of housing insecurity, including within our public housing system, right? So who will do the research? Homelessness research we have learned in the last few years is a very resource intensive thing to undertake. So there's often an element of it that is a little bit opportunistic. A lot of things need to line up for it to happen but it's something we'll always be interested in whoever is doing the research.
0: And consistent with this notion of like going beyond the headline figures, one of the things that really stood out to me, which I thought was really valuable from the report is through the in-depth interviews, which is new for 2021, the team identified three distinct groups, which I value because I think it's a, moving from like a variable to a person-centered approach, right? And um, you identify three distinct groups, the long-term homeless, that's one, the newly homeless, that's second, and the transnational homeless. So help us understand what distinguishes these three groups and individuals from one another. Hmm.
2: The biggest difference between the groups is their experience of rough sleeping firstly, and pathways into the shelter as well. The long-term homeless group, as the name implies, had experiences of rough sleeping even before COVID-19. They were mostly found while they were sleeping outside during the pandemic, with only a small minority that really referred themselves to the shelter. The second group, newly homeless persons, did not have any experiences of rough sleeping before the pandemic. And self-referral was the main pathway into the shelter for this group. The third group, transnational homeless persons, had a wide range of experiences with some actually needing to sleep rough quite regularly. These were Singaporeans who had been living in Malaysia or Indonesia, but commuted to Singapore very regularly, either for work reasons or visa renewal. So most in this group was stopped at the immigration checkpoint and then directed to the shelter after border closures during the pandemic. There were also differences in gender, uh, marital status and housing history between the three groups. For those who were long-term homeless, housing insecurity usually began with divorce or separation from their spouse. After losing their matrimonial home, many tried to access public rental housing, but then encountered barriers. So eventually some turned to low-cost open market rentals, but that was also mixed with periods of rough sleeping. Those in the newly homeless group often relied actually on open market rentals before the pandemic, or they tended to move frequently between friends and family's homes. This group had the largest number of women amongst all three groups. Because of the dangers and like hardships of rough sleeping, women were far less likely to sleep rough. Instead, they tended to depend on the goodwill of their social network in the form of those family members or friends. The transnational homeless group is most obviously different from the other two. These were almost all men married to Malaysian or Indonesian women who commuted to Singapore to earn a livelihood for their families and had experienced difficulties accessing public rental housing in Singapore. And to give you an example of what that looks like, the Malaysian spouse, for example, had to be a PR in order for them to qualify for public rental housing as a couple. And because they were doing low wage work and had no housing in Singapore, their main alternative was then to either sleep at the workplace or in public spaces when they did have to spend the night here in Singapore. And all of this kind of brings me to my main point here, which is to say that differences aside, one of the key findings of our study was that all three groups had a lot in common meaning that there were many common underlying factors that contributed to each of their housing insecurity, which is something that we can talk more about later as well.
0: Yeah. And that's helpful to distinguish between and find similarities across, right? Because Coco talked about and helped us understand the methodology, the big picture. Simran, you're helping us see the similarities and um, differences across those three different groups, right? Which helps us understand the state of homelessness right now. And kind of obvious a lot for listeners, especially social workers, would be, you know, what can we do, right? We know the big picture. We know these three different groups that's manifested. So what can we do? And one thing that Koho mentioned just now is that there's been a sheer scale of state intervention since that first report. And so you also acknowledge in your report that, you know, um, the first report has received public and policy attention. I quote, over time, services have also expanded and the tone of policy has softened. So maybe to help frame our discussion for this second part could you share with us what the state and social services have done since that first report in 2019
1: i think the changes since the the research started are in three areas the first is an expansion of services that is the result of increased policy attention so that's the first and and we see these changes kind of happening in waves voluntary outreach and shelter services had had been around for a long time actually, since the mid-2000s. But in the last few years, uh, these services have expanded and, and we see uh, more coordination by the government. So in 2017, when we did a very small scale pilot count, that year, the government started to work more directly with voluntary groups, mainly outreach groups. So that's the first wave of uh, service development. In 2019, uh, the year we published the first nationwide count, the government formalized a network of um, public agencies, NGOs, as well as community groups, focusing especially on overnight shelters that they call uh, safe, sound sleeping places or S3Ps. And in January 2021, there, the government also set up two new transitional shelters. So these are shelters where homeless people can stay for about six months and they are funded services. Right? So we see these three waves of expansion of services from outreach, to temporary shelters to funded uh, slightly longer term services happening alongside the, the research developments. And of course, a lot of the work is still done by volunteers. This is important to flag. Key housing policies have not changed. And neither has legislation providing for involuntary institutionalization, but nonetheless, uh, greater policy attention. The second change is a conceptual one. There's been a conceptual shift. I think if we went back 10 years, social workers would say that homelessness felt like a taboo subject. You you tried to avoid talking about it. And if you did, the official response was often focused on what the definition of homelessness should be and whether people were really homeless. And often the official line was that if you have housing in your name, then you're not really homeless. In the last few years, we have seen, when I say a softening of the tone of policy, what I mean is there's been more direct recognition of the problem. Uh, There's been acceptance that homelessness is about access to housing and not just formal housing status. So this conceptual shift is important. And it's only with this that the service expansion has been able to, to happen so smoothly. The third change, I think sometimes we... Uh, it's easy to forget about is that when policy changes, it's often because uh, there's been a shift in, in attitudes in society. right? So there's been greater public awareness and concern as well as intense media interest. I would say. So the idea that there are homeless people in Singapore, that we need to do more to help them and to prevent homelessness has now entered the mainstream of public understanding and discourse.
0: I mean, to me, it's interesting because I could imagine a counterfactual where the report wasn't published in 2019, but the pandemic will still happen, that those three things might not have happened or might not have changed or shifted. We might have a different, completely different conversation today about the state of the unhoused or homelessness in Singapore, right? one thing that the both of you do acknowledge in the report is that a step or step before homelessness is housing insecurity, which you described as very fragile living arrangements. You then add that, and I should quote from the report, policymakers and researchers must approach homelessness with a broader perspective, paying attention to its diverse forms and common underlying factors instead of focusing only on rough steeping, right? So could you illustrate some of these common factors to which we should pay attention? I imagine some of it will be drawn from what Simon mentioned about the consistencies across those three different groups. And then as a follow-up, would it be fair to argue that, you know, just relying on on social workers, social services itself, cannot necessarily address all these um, factors, right? I mean, the second question is kind of a loaded one, but but I thought I should put it out there first, yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. While the pandemic did support participants' entries, into shelter, I would start by saying the first kind of commonality is that the pandemic was not the dominant cause of housing insecurity, right? And as you point out, Junyao, we found a range of fragile living circumstances when it came to housing insecurity and experiences of housing insecurity. The key point to make here, as I said as well before, is that common factors contributed to all three groups' experiences of housing insecurity. And that was really regardless of whether they had experiences of rough sleeping. And for us, these really form the dynamics of housing insecurity in Singapore. And I will focus on three key factors. First, we talked about family earlier. Family conflict and relationship breakdown are an important factor in homelessness. When a marriage breaks down, the matrimonial home may be given up as part of the marriage settlement. Most male divorce participants had moved out and the matrimonial home went to their ex-wife and children. Depending on extended family and friends after that generally proved unsustainable and ended with friction or when participants were no longer able to make a financial contribution. The second reason is economic. Homelessness was often accompanied by in-work poverty. And by that, I mean low wages and insecure work so much so that people were not able to meet basic needs. So in this sort of circumstance, purchasing housing was not an option for them. And for those receiving public financial assistance, it was often insufficient in both the amount and the duration of it. And poverty is sometimes also related to health outcomes. Physical and mental health problems were common and had a detrimental impact on income stability as well. Sadly, not all who seemed to require treatment for these problems were receiving it. The third reason which I'll focus on is the lack of housing options. Here, there are a couple of issues. Open market rental, first of all, is expensive and keeping up with rents on low incomes was understandably challenging. There were also problems with landlords where tenants could be asked to leave on short notice. And we know that housing in Singapore is mainly about home ownership especially HDB flats. So for people who can't afford to buy housing, their main option left is HDB public rental housing. And these are flats directly rented out by the HDB to lower income persons on a subsidized basis. But there are problems with this option as it exists currently. The joint single scheme in public rental housing requires two singles who don't necessarily know one another at all to pair up and share a small studio flat with no separate bedrooms. And this sort of proximity often creates opportunities for friction, conflict, and leads to exit from rental housing. And for some, this means rough sleeping. Some participants weren't able to find a partner to begin with, meaning that they could not apply for public rental housing at all. And to um, answer your follow-up question, Jinyal, the first step in intervention where social services can come in, I think, is in identifying problems early and offering help. As housing insecurity, as we've talked about, tends to accompany other problems like poverty, poor health, family breakup, it is not uncommon for people who are homeless or in unstable housing to come into contact with social services to, for example, request financial assistance. These encounters, I think, are opportunities for housing intervention. By that, I mean that in these encounters, it is important for people working on the front lines to be more proactive in identifying housing problems. Social workers also engage homeless persons on the street At the moment, as we mentioned earlier as well, this form of outreach work is most often done by volunteers, who are very good at this, but community social workers have the professional skill set to do this extremely effectively. Family relationships are also in the domain of social services, so offering services like counseling and mediation could be helpful in times of family conflict. Other public agencies, however, are also in the picture and need to be more proactive. Agencies such as the police and NPACs, for example, could adopt a more kind of consistent practice to refer rough sleepers to support. Public agencies can also respond in a more collaborative and transparent way when FSC social workers advocate for their clients for housing support. But in the big picture, problems like poverty and housing options will require direct policy interventions. And these are ultimately beyond the reach of social services alone. Policy change is therefore an important part of any effort to help people meet their basic needs and access stable housing amongst all the other kinds of elements that we spoke about as well.
0: It's it's neat because you've you've given us a list of... um, Considerations and options, right? You 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 shared based on what you've observed from the, the unhoused and homeless, speaking to those who experience family conflict and marital transitions, those who experience inward poverty, who are receiving public assistance, and those who find difficulties in in, in, in having in accessing housing options, right? So. You know, the difficult question I think I'm putting you on the spot the of you on the spot is we wish we could do all these things at once, right? But let's say in the immediate term, in the short term, what are two or three of the interventions from a social change, policy change perspective that we should probably prioritize that we would see that we'll be able to move the needle a little bit further in that sense in the short term?
1: Yeah, we can highlight three. The first has to be about housing options. right? So the, the central finding and message from our study this time around, is that exits from homelessness will always uh, require accessible and adequate housing options. Um, In the context of Singapore, as Simran has uh, highlighted, it does come down to HDB public rental housing because homeownership will will certainly be out of reach for most uh, low-income homeless people. So this means HDB public rental housing We've already talked about some of the problems with the joint single scheme, both in terms of access and adequacy. So these need to be addressed, right? Problems with access have to do with the requirement for applicants to be paired up. So sometimes people just kind of find a partner. And also there is an income limit to qualify for public rental housing. This income limit is currently $1,500 monthly income in Singapore dollars. And this limit was last, reviewed and set in 2003 right which is on a uh, 19 19 years ago now so obviously it lags significantly behind living standards and and this income limit furthermore is applied to the pair of applicants combined incomes even though they are unrelated so this is an arrangement i can only politely describe as an irrationality and and then there are issues with adequacy of just a requirement to share uh, studio flat with no bedrooms as simon has explained so the reform here i think is very obvious the joint single scheme should be phased out and once uh, that is done it takes away the problem with the requirement to para uh, the way the income limit is applied and so on the second change related to this is that the income limit uh, surely has to be indexed to prices if we were not conscious of this before we, I think most people are very conscious now about what inflation and changes in living standards mean Mm -hmm. for for day-to-day livelihood. And then the third change is that homelessness should be one of the formal qualifying conditions for for public rental housing, which means that if someone is homeless or at risk of becoming homeless, they should be prioritized when applying for public rental housing. That's the, the first reform to public rental housing Second one has to be about wage interventions. We've already said poverty is at the heart uh, of housing insecurity and homelessness. And in Singapore, we have been uh, grappling with a low wage problem for, for many years. So last year was a big year for people watching this space and advocating for fairer wages. The announcement that the progressive wage model which is a a system of mandatory sectoral wage ladders. There was an announcement that this would be expanded. The objective is to bring low wages closer to the median wage. Uh, this This is happening live as we speak, right? Not all the announcements are out yet. And there is always the issue of what kind of leverage they would use to implement progressive wages. Because the main difference between a sectoral progressive wage versus a national minimum wage is that the latter legislated so it's compelled by law whereas the progressive wage usually uses administrative leverage such as licensing and registration of companies so still a lot a lot of details to be ironed out and and we should watch those announcements the third area of reform is social assistance the wage economy of course has to be fixed and for for most people wages is the largest part of their income. But we interviewed many homeless people who either cannot find work or are unable to work due to health problems and old age. And their main recourse, right, for this group will always be public financial assistance. Currently, the rates of assistance per month are about five to six hundred Singapore dollars, which falls significantly below what people need for a basic standard of living. Something we have chatted about in your show before. For a single elderly person, about a thousand and four per month. So an assistance rate of five to $600 doesn't even reach 50% of that. Right? So I think it's really important whenever we, we debate about the adequacy of financial assistance is to, know, is to remember that there is a cost, right? When financial assistance is not adequate, uh, sure, we, we, we save money, right? We reduce expenditure, but somebody is paying for it. And one of the consequences of economic vulnerability is, is homelessness.
0: Yeah, I mean what you are what the both of you have been speaking to is how these different forms of insecurities intersect, right? Like so, you know, it's correlated, right? If you experience housing insecurity, you are likely to experience wage, income, labor insecurities, your interactions with public assistance or social assistance as well. To me, what was kind of a standout and probably informed by you know my growing experience in, in the US is that first suggestion about public rental housing. One of the big policies that folks in the US push for is Housing First, right? And then this name suggests you really can't deal with steps two and three if you don't have that stability with with housing. It seems so intuitive, but, you know, for some reason, it remains contested, right? Like, oh, that housing should be conditional upon you doing certain things or fulfilling certain criteria before you get the housing. But Housing First the policy that says, no, the housing is a fundamental human right, and you need that stability before anything else can follow from there. And so I find it really hard to argue against your your first policy suggestion in that sense. Talked about the study. We talked about the policy, social welfare. The last part is always about my personal interest about research methodology, right? Um, and you alluded to it somewhat in the beginning as well when you talked about how the cumulative count is a lot less um, intensive than what you did in 2019. So I guess in the final part, I want to reflect a little bit on the methodology. You know, in thinking about researching homelessness in Singapore, what are the ethical priorities or risks you've had to consider? Right, what comes to mind is, you know, when you uh, interview folks who are unhoused and homeless, that, that dynamic of, of talking to them, especially with COVID as a factor. And then part of the other ethical kind of di- consideration here would be you know, working with the state because you did get data with, um, from the shelter, from, from the state itself. And so I imagine there's so many intersecting kind of considerations, which I would love to hear the experience from, from, from you.
1: Mm. This study, I think, has always involved several, di- several different layers of responsibility. We think of it as firstly, a responsibility towards our volunteers who have so generously given us their time and their enthusiasm to help us complete this study. We have an obvious uh, basic duty of care towards our volunteers. We're very conscious that we're asking people to do something they do not normally do, which is to walk around outside for a few hours, very late at night. So training is very important. And during those training sessions, uh, which is mandatory for our volunteers, we talk to them about which places not to go to. For example, in very large parks, some parts may may not be well lit, and so on. So that's a no-go area. So we stress that uh, safety is more important than data collection. So things like that—that's our first first responsibility. The second layer of responsibility is to the homeless persons that we encounter in the course of our field work, and here. We think about, firstly, their privacy uh, and then their safety. And by privacy, I mean very strict uh, when we brief our volunteers that they are not to disclose the identity or the location of the homeless people they see. So no photography, no social media posts and, and so on. We are very strict about it. We make every volunteer sign an undertaking promising not to do this. And this is related to the second issue uh, of safety. Safety from what? From the risk of involuntary institutionalization. So the context of this risk is a piece of legislation called the Destitute Persons Act in Singapore, which gives public officers the power to put people who meet the definition of destitution in an institution from which they may not be discharged unless we've, we've given permission. The current context is that this is meant to be the last resort. So the government is is not looking to put people in institutions, but nonetheless, the law still exists and therefore uh, the risk still does as well. And and the risk of deprivation of freedom is something I think we are very careful about, right? So hence the, the attention to, to privacy. And the third, maybe largest kind of responsibility, ethically speaking, is to the issue of homelessness uh, as a whole and to people in, in in our society who care about this issue. This project has always felt like a, a special one. I mean, we, we mainly do uh, in our research team, we mainly look at issues of social inclusion and marginalization. And yet even within this field, Homeless people have always felt like a group that that's in such a degree of vulnerability and marginalization that they stand out even when we compare them with other low income groups. They are also a group that I think have been hidden and out of sight for a long time. So we take this opportunity to to study their circumstances very, very seriously. We want to study and understand their experiences. We want to tell and explain their stories properly. And we want to identify the connections to things and policies that must improve. This, we feel, is is the responsibility of the research project right? to a group that has been so vulnerable for, for so long. So in specific concrete terms, we work very hard to meet the highest standards of rigor, meaning we do... We adopt the best method uh, that, that we can find to, to do this work. We try to meet high standards of independence, which is we we don't let ourselves be, be swayed, right when we when we draw conclusions, when we convey the findings and their implications. And, and then there is always, of course transparency. We try to communicate how we've done the study, the steps we've taken, the definitions we've adopted and why so that people can trust this data. Um, so these th- three elements, I think, rigor, independence, and transparency—they are the concrete ways in which we try to try to kind of fulfill this responsibility of studying this this very vulnerable group. And we hope that these are also the standards that that future studies uh, will, will try to meet. Right, whoever whoever does such research in future.
0: Yeah, and then bearing in mind those considerations and responsibilities, I had a final question about the pros and cons of working at larger or larger volunteer contingent, right? Because over you have over 200 volunteers. I guess as, what came to mind as a follow-up would be inviting both of you to kind of also reflect a little bit on what the experience has been for you in the sense of how that project has shaped you. One of my big beliefs is that, is that the researcher is not quote-unquote objective. Like... The, the research in turn can, and then going through the process, data collection, data analysis, can also shape us as individuals as well. So I'm really curious in terms of, you know, reflecting on this experience. I mean, Coco for two rounds, Simran for 2021 version. What's your interactions been with the, with the volunteers, the pros and cons, but more importantly, how has it been for you personally from doing this kind of project for, for such a long time?
2: Maybe I'll start by answering the volunteer question first, and then we can end with our reflections. For this study, we needed to cover just materially over 12,000 blocks of flats and the city area across 300 zones, and each zone required about two hours to cover on foot. So by virtue of that sheer scale of this nationwide study, it really would have been impossible for our small research team to do it without our volunteer field workers. And for that alone, the process was worthwhile and we are immensely grateful to our volunteers. And for us, volunteers are not just the people that we worked with for this study. It really ties in with our broader mission at the Social Inclusion Project to deepen public awareness on homelessness, because our volunteers also form part of our audience. And by exposing such a wide group of people to what it is like to be homeless, we hope that they would tell their friends, tell their family about the hardships of homelessness. This is also important given that homeless persons often struggle with stereotypes. And I think the best way to challenge stereotypes is to have firsthand experience. And put together, both studies in 2019 and 2021 gave an estimated 500 volunteers that sort of exposure. As Dr. also pointed to earlier, we also believe that people in our community want to contribute to issues that they are concerned about. And our study was a way to channel those efforts. And it's also part of nurturing a society where citizens have avenues to support causes that are important to them, which I think is one of my key reflections as well, if I could tie that in, in terms of the broader sorts of effects and ripple effect, hopefully, of the sort of work. As is always the case, however, with such a large number of people, there will be uncertainty. And at the beginning, we weren't sure how many people would sign up to be volunteer field workers. Would this opportunity interest people at all? But luckily, our volunteer list was oversubscribed each time. And once we got those volunteers on board, deployment was a complex exercise. Fundamentally, we were asking people to go on a two-hour-plus walk late at night, so we wanted to make it as convenient as possible for them by assigning them to zones near where they lived. This also helped with familiarity of the area that they were walking around. And of course, trying to match everyone to zones near where they lived was sometimes tricky with such large numbers. We also had to pay attention to consistency in data collection across such a large group of volunteers by designing a form and testing it to ensure that it was easy to understand and use. So that gives you some ideas of what some of the challenges were. But all in all, honestly, volunteer participation is at the core of this research project. And doing the research this way has contributed, I think, to a movement over the last few years that is a positive and virtuous cycle of growing public concern around homelessness and the development of services. And this inclusive way of working that involves collaboration between researchers, voluntary groups, social work agencies, and members of public is something we hope to see continue to grow for a long time to come. And I think for me, in terms of adding to my reflections really shows the possibility and the power of what can happen when we all do come together, especially for those pr- of us who are more privileged than others in our society, recognizing that sort of privilege and what understanding what can we do and exploring some sort of opportunities to be able to do that. And I think this experience has also shown me the nuance to which the sort of details that we need to pay attention to and the care that we need to have in putting that across, in operationalizing it and then communicating it to our wider community. And
0: Koko, I mean, you've been doing it for... Two cycles now, right? Maybe future cycles. So how has it been in terms of... And also, I should also add that, you know, housing insecurity has been a research topic of yours for a long time as well. So how has that research kind of shaped um, your research and, and your kind of personal perspectives and uh, reflections?
1: Mm. Doing... We started this conversation by talking about continuity. So... That means repeating the the study, especially a study like this, where you want to plot a trend and monitor what happens. Uh, Continuity is important. But for me, the last few years, studying housing security in in all its various forms, public rental housing, to housing relocation, and then finally homelessness, it also lends a, a depth of perspective, by which I mean we begin to see very obvious connections Across studies, we see the common drivers of people's vulnerability and exclusion. And sometimes when you do concurrent projects, so when we were doing the homelessness study, we were doing also a separate study on lower income households situations during the pandemic. And in some of the interviews for that other study, people talked about experiences with homelessness. So spending, I think, a length of time within a particular field and a topic Helps you to see the most important things that matter, like right? that make a difference to to people's situations. So for me, a lot of learning has has come from that. In the specific context of this homelessness study, I think this has always been a, a very special project. It's a very consuming project. It's a very demanding project. It has always meant a small core team working very hard, but with support from a very large group of concerned members of public and organizations and some of the most special encounters in the course of this project has been with the volunteer outreach workers who have been doing this work for many many years before we even began to do this research and they are still doing it now week after week they are doing this work i have a lot of respect and admiration for what they are doing and i think the lesson i take away is that I think research has has come some ways since we first started doing this work. Uh, The volunteer outreach workers have put in many, many hours and years of hard work. I think if we are serious about a whole of society approach to tackling homelessness, the next phase is really about policy change. That I think, and especially making available accessible and adequate housing, accessible and adequate housing for homeless people, I think that will make a change in terms of ensuring stable housing for, for everyone in our society.
2: Yeah,
0: I, I think that's a very neat way to end because in thinking about the transition from you know, the volunteer outreach workers to something that's more policy-based and one tidbit that came up when Rand's sharing is that you know for your project, the volunteer this was oversubscribed, which to me also speaks to the potential and opportunities for participatory and kind of public research in terms of its impact. And I also wouldn't be surprised if many of the volunteers of the project also overlap with the volunteer outreach workers as well, right? There must be folks who are really immersed. Folks can say there's a selection bias. These are folks who are engaged anyway. But to me, and I think reflected by the both of you, that shows that folks are willing and and, and really open to be committed. And that's something that we should wholeheartedly embrace. And, And that lifts me with a great deal of hope in terms of where we're headed down the road as well and I you know I, I, I'm i always looking forward to conversations like these because I think these are the kind of practice and pra- practice research and research projects that really advances social discourse in Singapore and I think um, that's something that listeners will really appreciate so thank you Simran thank you Coco for the work that you're doing and thank you for coming on and sharing those perspectives and reflections
1: thank you very much thank you much. so much <laughs>